working our way through the Psalms this summer. And we're not doing it in any particular order. We're not doing it in any, uh, you know, right, with any rhyme or reason. We're just kind of saying, let's pull out the Psalms that we enjoy, uh, that, that are uh, po- meaningful, that point us to Christ. Um, and we'll just talk about one of them per week. So this week, we're going to talk about Psalm 103. It's one of my favorite psalms, and I know I say that literally every week, but it's kind of true, because every week I dig into these, and I'm going, wow, I just didn't appreciate them like I, like I did on the front end of that. Um, and, and I've really uh, just, just love these, these words. Um, so we're going to dive right in, um, but before we start reading the, the text, um, the, the theme of this psalm, the, the, the overarching concept of this psalm is that we need to remind ourselves of God's greatness and God's grace. We need to remind ourselves of that. This psalm is a psalm that calls the people back, believers back to a, a, an appreciation and a worship of God uh, for us as we know him in Jesus. And we're going to see throughout this psalm uh, that, that we are called to remember certain things about the nature and character of God. And, and it is just a very uh, encouraging psalm for us. Uh, I don't know what you've been dealing with this past week. Um, you've probably had some hard days this week. You've probably had some challenges. Um, what we're going to hear is just this flood of gospel reminders that in Jesus, we are fully loved, in Jesus, we're fully forgiven. In, in Jesus, we are welcomed to him. And, and uh, I don't know how good your week's been or how bad your week's been, but all of us need to be reminded of those truths. And Sunday morning serves as sort of that opportunity to reset our, our hearts and our minds and our, and our emotions and affections towards Jesus. And I think this psalm is going to be really helpful to get us, get us to that place. Um, So let's start reading this. This is um, a psalm of David. David wrote most of the psalms. He didn't write all of them, but he wrote a lot of them. Uh, He was a prolific songwriter. And these are, we don't know much of the context of why David wrote these these words, but we know he wrote them. And so let's let's just hear what he has to say, what God has to say really through, through him. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So these first two verses in the psalm uh, really do summarize the the whole theme and idea behind what David's trying to get our hearts to understand. And that is that God is, is worthy of worship. That's what it means to bless the Lord. It's to, to bless the Lord is to speak highly of him, to speak well of him, uh, to, to admire him in our hearts and in our, in our words. And, and so that's really what he's just calling the congregation to, to bless the Lord, oh my soul. He, he's speaking to him, his own heart in this, and he's, of course, speaking to ours as well, that our souls need to respond to Jesus in worship and, and to bless his name. And, and then he says this, to bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To forget not all his benefits. 
He's, this is a, a kind of a negative way of saying something positive, which is to remember all his benefits. Right? He, he's saying it in a, by, by using forget not, but what he positively would be saying is remember, reflect on, point, point your soul back to the, his, his benefits. So let's think about that word benefits for a second. What is a benefit? Well, uh, if you think about it from the standpoint of a workplace, uh, a benefit would be something that your employer offers you that's above and beyond your salary, right? That it's not something that you necessarily are supposed to earn through working. It's supposed to be something that they give to you, which, of course, we know with corporate greed, it doesn't always happen that way, but it's supposed to be something that they give to you above and beyond what, what you would be receiving through your work. And what a, so what a benefit is, I think, in this context is just, again, that, that idea that God is giving us things that we don't earn, that we're not, we're not working for, that, that we've, we've just been given, lavished on by him, all of these things. And the remainder of the psalm is just going to list all of these benefits that the Lord gives to his people. All of these things that they just keep uh, they, it's, just, it's almost overwhelming how long the list is. And, I, and it's not even a complete list. It's a partial list, of course, but it, he really hits on so many things. So the, the concept here that we want to deal with before we start going through kind of this checklist of things is to remember that in the heart of this psalm, it is to draw our hearts to worship Jesus because of all that he is and all that he's done, that he's done for us. And so we should be putting ourselves into a, a posture of remembrance for his grace to us. And that's really what the word benefit is. It's a gift that's not earned, right? It's, a, it's something that is given to us without our earning it. And let's see what he has to say. So verse 3 starts this way. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. David starts right out of the gate with the most vital and important part of God's grace to us, that he forgives all of your iniquity. What, that word iniquity is not one that we use a lot in our, in our current day. It's not like we throw that word around a lot in ca- casual conversation. Uh, but we talked about iniquity uh, a few weeks back. I don't know how long ago it was, but it was in the summer that we've we ran into that word and we talked about the definition of iniquity being our deliberate, intentional disobedience and rebellions. That, so think about what, what David is saying here. Think about what the Lord is reminding us of today, that he forgives all of our deliberate, intentional rebellion. Like that in and of itself should just floor us and make us respond accordingly. He, he's telling us that God has forgiven us of all of it, everything that we've done that has wronged him or wronged others, that have, that's been outside of his plan. He has given us forgiveness for it. And not just some of our iniquities, but all of them. He forgives all our iniquity. Look at the next line. Who heals all your diseases. This is, uh, of course, we think of healing of diseases in a physical way, and there's some truth to that. We see in the ministry of Jesus 
uh, a lot of people being healed physically. And, and that, that ministry that Jesus had in healing people was a foreshadowing of the reality that would be for all of us, that one day all of our frail and imperfect bodies will be raised to life um, and, and to eternity with Jesus, and we will have total healing from all of our diseases. It doesn't happen necessarily on this side of heaven, but it will be a reality uh, on the other side as we are raised with Christ in the resurrection. But this also conveys not just a physical healing, it conveys a spiritual healing. That our, our sin has plagued our souls. It has caused a, a rampant disease to destroy our lives. And so what we're told here is that this God who extends these things to us purely by grace, purely by mercy, he, he forgives all of our open rebellion and he heals us of all of our brokenness, all of our disease, all, of our, all the ways that sin has ruined us. He says in verse 4 that he redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is, a, this is imagery that we can picture, right? Being stuck in a pit is not a good place to be. I don't think anybody wants to be stuck in a pit, right? Fall into a well and, and not be able to get out. But what we're told here is that that's the condition of our souls, before Jesus intervenes, that we are stuck in this pit, that we are going to die in that pit. What does Jesus do? He comes and he redeems our life from the pit. That word redeems means to purchase, to buy the freedom for someone. Um, it, it's, it's a word that's used in the context of indentured servanthood. Um, we would a lot of times our Bible translates this as slavery. Now, slavery, that word carries a lot of connotations in American history. Um, we need to understand that the Bible, its use of slavery is very different from our understanding of slavery. Um, it was not a racial uh, decision to just say, we're going to enslave somebody for life based off where they were born. That's, that's obviously evil, and, and it's obviously... Um, something that we should be uh, just horrified by. In the Bible, though, slavery was meant to uh, allow someone to pay off their debts. It, it was a way for someone who didn't have a way to pay someone debt to work that debt off. And actually, in the Old Testament, when you read the book of Leviticus, um, there, there is parameters that God sets around that issue of indentured servanthood. And, and he actually says that in there that... Um, on the year of Jubilee, which would have been the seventh year, every seven years, there would be a year of Jubilee. And that year, all debts would be forgiven. And, and every slave would be set free. So again, American slavery was very different. It was this lifelong, you had no way of getting yourself out of it. And it was based off your race. Um, this, uh, in, in the Old Testament understanding of it, is different. It's it's you're paying off your debt until either you pay it off or the year of Jubilee comes and then you're free. And so there, there's, God never intended for people to be enslaved forever. And so, but what we re need to recognize in this context here, when he says he's redeeming us from the pit, it, it's, it's very similar 
or reminds me at least of the story of Joseph. And Joseph was thrown into a pit by his own brothers because they just hated him, mostly because there was a family dynamic there where their dad, they were actually half-brothers, um, Joseph had a different mom than the majority of his, uh, his siblings, and they hated him because his father, their father rather, favored his mom over their mom and therefore favored him over them. It's a, it is just messed up. It is really messed up. And that's what sin does, right? It messes us up. It, it ruins us. It's, it scars us. And, and so his brothers throw him into a pit, and their intention was to leave him there to die. But one of the brothers says, no, 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 we, we shouldn't let him die. We should make some money off of him. Let's sell him. And, and that was Reuben. Reuben was trying to kind of get his brothers to delay their plan so that he could eventually rescue Joseph. That was the plan. But while Reuben was gone, uh, the brothers came across some slave traders from Egypt and they sold Joseph into slavery. And so what happened is, just ironically here, these people from Egypt or wherever they were from, they were going down to Egypt, bringing a caravan of slaves and other, other objects to sell to the Egyptians. These people were used by God to redeem Joseph's life. And they, they redeemed his life from the pit. And then they sold him to someone in Egypt and God used that whole journey, that whole terrible journey to save the lives of Joseph's own family. Because when there was a famine in the land and his family was threatened to die from starvation, Joseph had been put to work in Egypt and had stored enough food for the Egyptians to have all that they needed and above and beyond so that his own family could be rescued. And, and so it's just an amazing thing how God uses terrible circumstances to get his way across. And at the end of the day, what this is telling us is this, that Jesus is the one who redeems our life from the pit by becoming a curse for us on the cross. He redeems our life. He pulls us up. And in the process, he is crucified and killed. But this is the rescue that we experience from, from God, this, this benefit flows from us, the forgiveness of our iniquities, the healing of our diseases, the redeeming of our life from the pit. It says this, that he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He doesn't just pull us out of the pit and then leave us on our, on our way. He pulls us out of the pit and then he puts a crown on our heads and that crown is made of the most precious thing in all the world. More than any jewels or gold, it is made of the love and mercy of God. God crowns you with his love. He, he loves you and he's merciful to you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've tried to run from him, he, he is there and he's eager to pull you from the pit and crown you with steadfast love. Verse five says, he satisfies you with good. That God himself is the one who wants you to be satisfied. And we can be satisfied in him, right? That, that's where our satisfaction ought to be placed. It's in him and him alone. And so God has saved us to satisfy us with good so that, it says, your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
These are just some of the benefits that God is wanting us to remember today. That we're here today because God has pulled us up. He has rescued us. He has loved us. He has forgiven us. He has satisfied us. All of these things we know are fulfilled in Jesus. And they're only fulfilled in Jesus. But that's just the first paragraph, and we still got a lot more of this psalm to go. So let's just keep reading here. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God cares about the oppressed. God cares about those who are downtrodden. And God is at work. He's working righteousness for them. He's doing so because ultimately in Jesus, all of the oppression of the world will cease. There's, a, there's an old Christmas song that has a line like that in it that talks about how all, all of the oppression of the world will cease because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. God is at work in righteousness and justice for the oppressed. It says, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now that's a quotation from the book of Exodus, um, and it, it's tied into this God making known his ways to Moses. Um, Moses, if you aren't familiar with the context, when he's up on the mountain of Sinai and receiving the law, um, Moses asks God to show him God's glory. He want, God, show me your glory. That's what he asks. And God tells Moses, you can't see all of my glory or you'll die. It's too great for you. But what he does is he allows Moses to be kind of tucked away into the cleft of a rock. He's up on a mountain, so he gets this little hiding place where Moses is sort of shielded. And, and God passes by. God takes on some kind of a form in that moment, and he passes by. And as he does so, Moses is able to see the, just kind of the, the, the train of his robe, right? the, the, kind of the, the back uh, of his, basically just his back, because if you saw his face, he would die. But what's amazing is that as God passes by to, to show Moses his glory, what he says about himself are these words, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. When, when God wants Moses to know fundamentally who he is, he describes himself as merciful, as gracious, as slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast, which steadfast means immovable, right? Unchangeable love. I'm reminded of just a passage I, I read yesterday in, in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus is talking uh, about um, kind of human conflict and, and trouble there. And um, what he says um, is that he says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And I, I had never really paid attention to that before. I'd, I've read Luke many times. It just never struck me. But it struck me yesterday 
that God is kind to the ungrateful and the, and the wicked. This, this is not something new. This is a long-standing, eternal reality of who God is, that he is merciful and he's gracious. But he's not just merciful and gracious to good people who are doing good things. And guess what? There really are none of those. So if you're wondering, <laughs> if God only showed his kindness to the good, then there'd be no one to show kindness to but himself. God has to show his kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked because that's all there are. And so he does this. He does this over and over again, thousands upon thousands of times in your life and in mine and all over and throughout history. You you can't be too far for God to be merciful and gracious to you. He is is there and he is going to pour out his love on you as you call on him. Verse 9 says this, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God does experience anger at sin. It's what led Jesus to the cross. The cross of Christ is the ultimate display of both God's love and God's justice. God's anger at sin was poured out on Jesus. But the promise of this verse is that he will not always chide. He will not always discipline and he will not always be angry. This is, of course, a, a, a foreshadowing, right? This was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever lived. And, and yet this is a reminder that there will come a day where God's, God's judgment will not be fe- felt or faced by us because it will be felt and faced by Christ. And because of that, the rest of these verses are able to be true. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He, he does not deal with us according to our sin or according to our iniquities. This is what makes grace, grace. Right? The grace is different from anything that we understand in our world. And, and generally what we think even as Christians, we slip into this mindset that it's ultimately karma, right? Now, karma is a concept that what goes around comes back, right? Like what you do is going to come back to you somehow. And we love that as sinners because as sinners, we just want people to get what they deserve, unless it's us. (laughs) Then we don't want to get what we deserve. But that's what, we, that's what we're always about. And, and whether we realize it or not, we have embraced a theology of karma that is not grace. This verse tells us the exact opposite of that. It says that God does not deal with us according to our sins. And he does not repay us according to our iniquities. He does not give you what you deserve. That's the point. He does not give to me what I deserve. He doesn't deal with us in that way. He doesn't say to you, okay, you have sinned, therefore now you have to pay this. 
Why is that the case? Because it actually, interestingly, was not the case in David's day. David lived under the Levitical system where you sin, you bring a goat or or a a sheep or something, and that thing dies and you uh, are able to go free. You had to pay for your sin. So how can he be writing these things and saying, God doesn't make us do that? Well, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who is giving him an insight into what will be when Christ himself becomes our sacrifice. We are not paid according to our sins because Jesus was paid according to our sins. Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserved. Jesus was was forced to pay, not forced, but willingly took the cross to pay for our iniquities. Jesus did that so that we would not be repaid according to our sins. And here's, here's where that comes from. This flows ultimately from the very heart of who God is. Look at verse 11 and 12, really 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. These, these verses get at the heart of who God is. It's not just what has God done, but what God has done flows from who God is. Right? And so God's ability and willingness to not repay us according to our deeds or his willingness to redeem our life from the pit or his willingness to forgive all our iniquities, his willingness to do all of that flows from the very nature of who he is, which is fundamentally his, what, what's listed here in, the, in verse 8, his merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love character. And that's what's highlighted here. Is, he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high, so great, is the steadfast love of the, towards those who fear him. Though, for those who have trusted in Jesus... The love of God is so vast, it's, it's not even something that we can calculate. Like, we, we literally don't even know how far and large the, the galaxy, the universe is. It's actually, we know it's growing, it's increasing in size. And so we have this amazing imagery that is for as high as the heavens are above the earth, which is infinitely high as far as we can tell as finite people, that's what God's love is like for those who trust in him. And then he says this, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us, our transgressions from us. The east and the west are as far apart as you can get. Right? There's, there's no point in which you, you traveling east 
you're not going to start traveling west. It's kind of the, the deal with the sphere. You know, we live on this, this, this earth, but you're just never going to meet east and west. They're, they're, it's impossible to find a place where they converge. They don't, they don't ever meet, and that's the point. The point is that our sins are taken away from us so far that we will never see them again. They're gone. He takes all of it and he removes them from us. And then we see the, this compassionate heart that God has for us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. Now, fathers here on earth are not perfect like God is. And our compassion is not what it ought to be. But if you could, you know, just imagine the perfect father, which none of us had, none of us are. If you could just picture that perfect father and the compassion that he would have, you've got a decent picture of God and probably short of what God actually is. But this is what it's saying, that God is this Father who shows compassion. And he shows compassion to us because he knows us. It says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We, We are not impressive. God created everything, including us. So what do we have to impress him with? Which, which, by the way, makes what we're talking about all the more remarkable because he doesn't love us because we're lovely. He, love, he, he loves us and that's what makes us lovely in his eyes. It's, it's, it's nothing that we offer him. Our frame is just dust. We've got nothing to offer the God of the universe and yet these things are still true. That he's merciful and gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in love. He goes on to talk about us for a little bit here. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. We're temporary. We're here, and we're gone. But, Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant. Remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Again, this is just highlighting the, the temporary nature of, of us as human beings, but comparing that to the eternal love that God has for those who are his. Then he closes the psalm with a, a call to worship again. Similar to what he started with, he says this, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. So he's talking to the angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Hosts is another word for armies. And again, so we're talking angelic beings here. His ministers who do his will. And then he says, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
He calls us back. That, that this God who has loved us and, and saved us, redeemed us, bought us, forgives us, all the things that we've just looked at, all of these, been, we're called to bring these things to mind. Because here's the thing, we are, we're all failures. We all fail to live up to God's holiness. We all fail to, to do what we ought to do. And yet what we need to be reminded of is that in the moments of failure that we experience, God's love doesn't change. God hasn't shifted from us. We may shift from him, but he is eager to run to us and call us back. Our our great God loves us in spite of us. He loves us even though we're dust. He, He loves us and he's called us to himself. And Here's how we connect this to Jesus. We, we have to understand that all of these things are true because God himself became one of us, entered into our world, lived a perfect life that we could never live. In, and in doing so, he earned uh, the right, he earned the right to, to stand before God as our representative and to stand in our place. And Jesus then took our sin upon himself. But what we are fun- fundamentally called to remind ourselves of in Psalm 103 is that though our sins are great, his grace is greater. Our sins are great, but he is greater. Our, our sins should separate us from him forever. Like, we should understand that. We, we deserve to be in hell. We deserve that. But we're not. Why? Because God is gracious and merciful. And he's, and he's done everything that we could never do so that we would live eternally with him and not apart from him. And, and I think it's an important reminder for us to put these things in front of us. To, to put in front of us the, the grace and mercy and love of God because none of us measure up to it. None of us deserve it. We've all fallen short of it. And yet it's freely offered to every one of us in the gospel. It is freely offered that we can come back to Jesus and then we can receive from him compassion and forgiveness, grace, mercy, and everlasting love. What an amazing God we have. I think this is an important thing for us to focus on because we're, in just a few minutes, going to partake of the Lord's table. And if, if, you're, haven't, if you haven't been here for a little while, uh, normally we take communion every week. Well, we are a weekly communion church. That's, that's just our conviction. And the reason that we're convicted about that is because we believe fundamentally that every week we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus has died for our sins so that we can have a a relationship with him. We need that reminded. We need to be reminded every single week that there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we did to deserve it. That God has just done this for us by his mercy. We need that. And so we do do it every week. We, We partake of this every week. Now, 
three out of four Sundays or four out of five, depending on how the month shakes out, we, we do this individually, kind of as a, either as families or individuals, and we'll get up and go to a table and partake. And we're okay with that. We think that that's good and has a place. But we also realized a few months ago that, that our, our theology of the Lord's table was sort of lopsided. It emphasized the personal forgiveness we have in Jesus, but it neglects the corporate communal relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so to kind of balance that out, we've started to partake of the Lord's table corporately together uh, as a church um, on a monthly basis. And so that's today. But, but I want to I draw our minds back to this because what Jesus did as he established the Lord's Supper in just prior to his crucifixion has everything to do with what we've just seen from Psalm 103, which is to forget not all his benefits. Jesus says to his disciples, um, he says here, that when the hour came, this is from Luke 22, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is a long history in the Bible of being reminded of God's great grace. And the culmination of God's grace in the crucifixion of his own son Jesus on the cross, Jesus prepares his followers to remember him. And so this is important because when we come to the table, whether it's like this or, or on our own throughout the rest of the month, what we are called to do in that moment is to bring to mind, forget not, all of his benefits, to remember Jesus and what he has done for us. We get to remember this. We need to remember this. In fact, I, I'm, I'm reminded often of Martin Luther when he was asked by someone, by a critic, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? They thought he should just be focusing on, you know, deeper things, as if there are deeper things. I'm not sure there are, um, but... His response was priceless. He said, I, I preach the gospel every week because every week we forget it. And there is so much truth in that. Because, yeah, we may not forget it intellectually. We're probably not that, like, you know, leaky-brained people. But we absolutely forget it in our hearts. We absolutely forget it. And we, we are inundated with a theology from the world six days out of seven days a week we're being told by everything around us that we have to earn, that we have to deserve, that we have to work for everything. And, and what God's grace reminds us of is that the most significant thing of all, 
was freely offered through Jesus. Because Jesus worked for us. Jesus obeyed for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. That we need to get from our, heart, from our head into our hearts. And that's why weekly communion for us, and again, I'm not saying universally this has to be true in every church, but for us, we've, we're convicted about that because I think there is something to this, this reminder that we, we are loved. We're loved regardless of what we've done and how bad we've been and how rebellious we are. We are loved and we're brought into the, the kingdom of God because and purely on the basis of Jesus' works for us. So we're going to take some time to remember these things. We're, we're going to take some time here at, at the end of our um, sermon this morning. We're going to partake of the table. And, uh, and so to do that, I, I kind of want to just set this up for us by, by reading a few things um, to remind us of what we're here to do. Um, and so as we prepare our, our hearts for this, let's, let me just remind you of why we're doing this at all. Um, this is the Lord's table that, we're, that we've been called by him to, to do and remember. This is, a, this is a marker of the church. This is something that Jesus instituted for his church to do on a regular basis. And, and here's what we're being reminded of. A few things. We're being reminded first and foremost of his dying for our sakes and the pledge of his undying love because of his death on the cross. We're being reminded of those truths that we've just read in Psalm 103. We're being reminded of that. But all of those things are true because Jesus went to the cross and rose again. We're being reminded, secondly, of the, the union that we have with him. That, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are united to Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. And when we have this amazing opportunity to be reminded of the fact that, that he is the source of our life and our joy and, and it's only through him. We're also being reminded here that he seals his grace in us through the Holy Spirit, through, through the promised Holy Spirit that we, ha- are all, uh, that we all obtain if we've trusted in Jesus, that we are reminded of that. And we are also reminded of our call to be obedient to him. Yes, we don't earn any place with him through our good works, but his love for us propels us to obedience and good works. We're being reminded of the blessed assurance of his presence with us, that though we cannot see him, we love him because he's tangibly present with us through the, through the elements and through our communion, community of the saints. We're being reminded here that we get to feed on Jesus spiritually. We're not literally eating his blood or drinking his blood and eating his flesh. That's, that's not what's happening, right? This is just juice. It's just bread. 
but these, these elements that we have uh, to represent those things are, are there to remind us of a spiritual feeding that we have on Jesus, who is the bread of life. And we're also reminded that he is going to return for us. Paul tells us that we should eat and drink of this communion and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns, which means that he will return, and we have assurance of that, and we're, this is a pledge that he will return for us. So I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we'll uh, invite the servers to come up. I, I, I'm assuming we have some people. If not, I'm just going to pull some random people out here, but we'll get it going here. Um, and here's, here, let, me just, let me just quiet our hearts and pray before the Lord. Um, Father, we, we want to take this moment to um, be reverent before you, bow our heads before you, to, to show you the, the respect and the adoration you deserve because of Jesus. We pray that as we meet with you now at this table, that you would give to us the genuine consolation that our souls need today. We pray for the assurance of pardon, the assurance of love and salvation through Jesus. We pray that our works would not get in the way, that we would just rest in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.